0: This is the John Oakley Show podcast. We do have other things I wanted to address, and not least of which is this idea that the United States calling out Canada over its military spending. This in the form of a blunt letter sent from the U.S. government delivered to the Department of National Defense. It criticized Canadian defense spending levels and repeated American demands that Canada meet NATO targets. And so, uh, Peter McKay who was one-time defense minister, certainly knows about these matters. He's joined us on the line, I guess because this is a break from tradition or protocol. Mr. McKay, good to have you on The Oakley Show. Good afternoon.
1: Well, thank you, John. This is an important issue. I'm glad to hear you're you're zeroing in on it.
0: Well, I'm kind of curious about the blunt letter. This is in quotations now because uh, this is our news team reporting on that. Uh, That seems somewhat out of the ordinary in and of itself, does it not?
1: It is unusual. Uh, A blunt demarche from the United States is going to raise a lot of uh, concern in our capital and elsewhere. And I I do believe that it's, quite frankly, born out of frustration. They've seen uh, Canada and other NATO countries, to be fair, uh, not moving in the right direction when it comes to our commitment to get to those 2% of GDP levels that we promised to do in 2014 in Wales at a NATO meeting and so it's um, it's a bit out of the ordinary, but I think, as I said, it's coming from the United States at a time when they see very real threats on the horizon. And let's not forget, as much as NATO was often maligned, along with other organizations like the United Nations, it is really the frontline collective Western defense alliance for the world.
0: Amen to that. But my understanding, that conference in Wales back in 2014, uh, these targets were aspirational within a decade, were they not?
1: Yeah, that's correct. But I think what we're seeing now is a little bit of creative calculation on the part of many countries, including Canada, as to what's included in how we get to that 2%. And uh, what we're talking about, really, in in most cases, is hard assets, is things like fighter aircraft, things like missile defence, Uh, Issues around our collective defense require collective spending on assets that are actually going to be able to deter and turn back any threat of conventional as well as cyber. And cyber, of course, we know has become really the next quintessential threat on the horizon from both traditional adversaries like China, Iran, Russia, but also what we know or, or what we describe sometimes As non-state actors, lone wolf, those that uh, would conduct attacks on our critical infrastructure, our citizens. And North America is not immune. I I don't need to mention that 9-11 was the only time that Article 5 has been invoked by NATO and resulted us being in Afghanistan for almost 12 years.
0: Again, with Peter McKay, one-time Defence Minister, we're talking about this blunt letter that was sent from the United States to Canada saying uh, you've got to live up to your commitments uh, made at the NATO conference in Wales in 2014 as cited. And that's 2% of GDP, and we're falling far short of that. Uh, Right now, I guess, around 1.27% of GDP. And uh, collectively, it's about $22.9 according to the Department of National Defence, and uh, we're looking to increase that to almost $33 billion annually within the decade. But still, uh, is it going to be adequate for the uh, threats that you're uh, enunciating here? Like when we talk about China and Russia, for example, uh, they've got designs on the high Arctic. And uh, one of the cri- criticisms from the Americans is that we're not taking that seriously enough. How do you see it?
1: I, I believe that is the case. And during our term in government and, and my time at defense, we did, in fact, put a lot of emphasis on Arctic sovereignty and security. We had annual military exercises in the Arctic. We utilized and, and uh, very much involved our Arctic Rangers, who are our First Nations people, the eyes and ears of the Arctic. We put put in place plans and budgeted for Arctic offshore patrol vessels, uh, icebreakers. But to come back to your point about Russia, they're becoming very active. On the other side of the Arctic Ocean, they've recapitalized 14 military bases. They're renewing and repaving some of the Cold War era airstrips that are in the Arctic. And we know with the climate change reality, and it's real, the the Arctic waters are opening. We are seeing much more activity, both what they call research, uh, recreational, but also military uh, presence in the Arctic. And look, there's another country that's looming large in this discussion, and that's China. China are not only building aircraft carriers, but they're building icebreakers. They have now status in the Arctic Council as a near-Arctic country, although they're not very near, and they don't need icebreakers in the South China Sea. But they see the important transportation link that uh, that goes from east to west, and they want to capitalize on it. But these are internal Canadian waters. And so the point I would make, John, is we have to work very closely with our most, most important ally, which is the United States of America. Let's not forget that other very critical uh, military component of our mutual defense in North America, that being NORAD. And uh, in addition to the necessary vessels, military vessels and others, we need fighter aircraft. And we needed, and I take personal responsibility and interest in this, we needed to buy F-35 aircraft. I, eventually, I believe we will. Mm. I'm quite certain that eventually we will. But we're now losing our place in the queue, and we're, we're basically forfeiting billions of dollars that we've already invested in this aircraft that we've been part of the program going back to the 1990s under a previous Liberal government.
0: I find it interesting, you know, just to back up a little bit, with uh, China and Russia having designs on the high Arctic, uh... They don't recognize our sovereignty. Uh, In fact, the Americans even draw it into question, how could we possibly assert our sovereignty in the high Arctic?
1: Well, in short, having a much more permanent presence there. Now, that's easy to say. It's very expensive. It is prohibitively cold in many cases. We need to put down more infrastructure, including finishing up the deep water refueling station at Nana Civic. But we need to make those investments for the longer-term protection of Canadian sovereignty and territory. And look, let, let's be honest, there, there is a, a massive interest on the part of many countries in our water supply, in our resources, in our sovereignty, and it is a direct route. Canada, of course, is the route in which any rogue missiles or others would come into North America. And so having some sort of an early warning system, I'm not advocating for weaponizing the Arctic, but having what is the modern equivalent of the dew line, which is a tripwire that will tell us uh, when those potential threats are present. We know there are going to be submarines, nuclear submarines, with deep water capability under heavy ice in the Arctic. We don't have that capability. So we need to work in unison with our, our best friend and ally, despite the occupant of the White House or the occupant of 24 Sussex, military to military, we need to work cheek and jowl with the Americans to protect North America.
0: Again, and the due line, by the way, distant early warning line, uh, which right. was, as you say, the tripwire. But you know, let me reference Trump because, you know, uh, yes. He's been considered the great disruptor, but not necessarily for the worst, because uh, Jen Stoltenberg, who's the Secretary General of NATO, has actually paid him compliments for getting people uh, off their duffs and spending more uh, on NATO, making a greater NATO contribution. In fact, uh, you know, threatening to withdraw, or, uh, you know, he's upset the apple cart, but he's gotten the attention of people. There are countries in the Baltic that are meeting the 2% GDP demand. Uh, So do you think maybe in a way... uh, He's firing a shot across the bow and giving everyone a wake-up call.
1: Yes, I think he is, and, and I don't, I don't disagree with you. In spite of the reputation as being a disruptor and having made some very, um, let's say, undiplomatic comments, he is pinning the rose on everyone to do the right thing when it comes to defense spending. He has put China on its heels, both diplomatically and economically, in terms of this trade war. He has called out Russia in many ways, um, and and more needs to be done, quite frankly, in that regard. Let's not forget that they invaded Ukraine and and annexed Crimea. They've uh, been threatening through cyber attacks uh, many of the Baltic states. But, look, uh, we have to work with the Americans, and I'm I'm proud to say that previous defence ministers that I've had the good fortune to work with have nothing but the utmost utmost respect for the Canadian forces. Our men and women in uniform performed magnificently in Afghanistan. It, it renewed that great reputation of our citizens in uniform who do so much at home and abroad. But uh, these, are, these are challenging times. And democracy itself is under threat in parts of the world. We only have to look at what's going on in Iran, in Hong Kong, to see people are being oppressed. Canada can be a leader. Canada can be part of the the broader international commitment through NATO, our our commitments through NORAD, but we do have to invest. And this, of course, comes into the the, the larger challenge, of course, that governments have, and that is setting their priorities and being economically competitive and productive to be able to afford those big muscle movements, those equipment investments that we've been discussing.
0: All right, and this is all in anticipation of the next NATO summit in London. That's next week, December 3rd. I'll ask you finally, Peter, uh, Article 5, uh, it says that, you know, if you attack one member of NATO, the others are, are duty-bound to defend. Uh, is there still a place for Article 5 within the uh, NATO Constitution?
1: I believe there is. And and I mentioned the, uh, the triggering of Article 5 for an out-of-area um, mission, which was Afghanistan. I believe that it has a very strong deterrent effect against Russia and other countries. Let's not forget why NATO was stood up post-World War II. It was to act in our collective defense, as you've mentioned. One can only speculate what might have happened in the defense of Ukraine had they been members of NATO. And we have members in NATO now who we helped to get to a better place. We helped to uh, quell uh, the type of violence that was going on in, in countries like Croatia and Bosnia. We have a lot to be proud of as a founding nation of NATO, but we need to constantly renew and revisit those commitments and we need to have public discourse and and what you're doing is very helpful in reminding all of us the importance of this collective defense so article five absolutely i believe in And expansion of nato was something else i also believe in
0: fair enough uh i appreciate uh getting a sense for uh, exactly what's in play here before the conference in london next week and where the americans are coming from Uh, I guess by giving us the heads up, like everybody, pull up your socks. Peter McKay, former defense minister here in the Parliament in Canada, thanks so much for your time. Real pleasure to speak to you, John. Thanks to you. Likewise. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.